Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. It is gorgeous today in Atlanta. Uh, I actually took in a bike ride. I mean, it's 60 degrees, which isn't like warm, but warm enough to just throw on some shorts, two pair of shorts actually, uh, a hoodie and a t-shirt, a t-shirt and a hoodie. Let's go that route. And I got in a nice little bike ride. Not gonna lie. I needed a little uh, sun, some of that. What is it? Vitamin E? Is that what that is? Vitamin E needed it. And I feel so much better. So I'm ready to take on the show. Actually, a lot of the show is going to be taken on by the governor, Governor Brian Kemp, giving his state of the state address today. And we'll go through uh, of that bit by bit as much as we can. I'm going to try and give you as much of his speech as possible with a little commentary mixed in. And then I got to go over all the trauma yesterday in Washington when Hunter Biden called Republicans bluff. Oh, and they didn't take it too good at all. Comer got his ass handed to him. And then he had some of the other asses show their asses. Because Hunter Biden said, uh, I'm here. You wanted me to testify? Oh, wait, the cameras are on? Yeah, let's do it now. And Jared Moskovitz uh, called him out for it. And uh, Jamie Raskin called him out for it. Jim Jordan was called out. It was uh, chef's kiss. But uh, this is, of course, an Atlanta, Georgia-based political commentary uh, podcast and radio show on the America One radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com and wherever you podcast that I figured we should start with the governor's state of the state, uh, state address, which he gave this morning. Let's give you as much of that as possible. And my fellow Georgians, later this year, the people of this state will once again fulfill their civic duty. They will choose who occupies these seats of service, and they will determine what course America takes in the years to come. As they have in years past, when they go to the ballot box, they'll see a stark difference between Georgia and our nation's capital. They'll see what we've achieved together at the state level to make Georgia an even greater place to live, work, and raise a family. Is this the part where we bring up that Georgia ranks sixth in infant mortality, first in maternal mortality, first in uh, HIV diagnosis, 48th in mental health care, 50th, tied for 50th, with the minimum wage, uh, the second worst state for the uh, percent of uninsured, <laughs> ninth in gun violence. And they'll see the hardships Washington, D.C. has brought into every home and placed on every kitchen table across our state. Congress has become synonymous with runaway spending, bloated budgets, job-killing regulations, gridlock and partisanship, and elected representatives in both parties who are more interested in getting famous on cable news than delivering results for the American people. All the while, across the nation, over 60% of households are living paycheck to paycheck. Over 8.4 million Americans are working two jobs to make ends meet. Mortgage rates remain at highs not seen in a generation. And while the rate of inflation may have fallen, High prices on everything from groceries to rent have not. In fact, it cost Americans over $11,000 more per year to maintain the same quality of life that they had just a few short years ago. But he, nor the rest of the GOP, want to do anything about price gouging. For the hardworking men and women of this country, paying $11,000 more a year is not a choice between the luxuries of life 
For too many people, that's the decision between putting food on the table for their family, making their car payment, buying clothes for their kids, or going further into debt. For a recent graduate, it's about whether you can afford to get your own place and pay off your student loans. For a single mom, it's a decision about taking a job, a new job and a new career that pays better, but it doesn't offer child care. Well, uh, we could talk about how the GOP stonewalled every effort for President Biden to deal with student loan debt. We could talk about, again, how Georgia is the 50th state when it comes to uh, the minimum wage ranking. And while we're on child care, let's talk about the fact that child care is more costlier than college tuition is in Georgia, according to some recent statistics. And that's all for profit-driven entities. And by the way, subsidized by the state government. Now, put a pin in that when he gets to talking about school vouchers later, okay? For a family of four, can they make ends meet when also saving for their kids' college and trying to pay their mortgage? And for our seniors, are they able to stretch a fixed income to meet their basic needs? These are the people that Washington, D.C. has left behind. Because for every challenge our nation faces, the federal response is to spend more, regulate more, tax more, and come up with another government program meant to cure every ill. Later in the speech, the governor plans on addressing how he plans to spend more, uh, regulate women's bodies. Well, he doesn't mention that in the speech, but we all know that Republicans love regulating women's bodies. We also want to talk about uh, taxing by way of cash bail, right? Uh, You know, even if you're supposed to be presumed innocent until guilty, they're going to have to pay up front. Oh, yes. And of course, creating a new agency to dole out school vouchers to cure a problem. Instead of empowering hardworking Americans to innovate, create, seek greater prosperity, their answer is simply more government. But the good news is here in Georgia, we have chosen a different path because we realize that the success of our state does not rely on the actions of government, but the prosperity of our people. Washington, D.C. forgot a long time ago that it's not the brilliance of politicians or the good intentions of a new program that make our nation great. It is the resolve, the ingenuity, and the character of the American people. Those were the hardworking Georgians we heard from on the campaign trail. As a family, we heard their stories, their struggles, and their hopes for a brighter future. And as you all know, that was truly a family affair. And I want to thank Marty, uh, Jared, Marty and the girls. Lucy, and Amy Porter for being there every step of the way. <laughs> thank you all. Also appreciate my mom, who y'all recognized earlier. My sister Julie Reef and her husband are here with us today, and we just uh, are honored by their presence. My commitment to the people of our state was very simple. I promised to put hardworking Georgians first, fund our priorities like education, public safety, and health care, but also keep government efficient, responsible, and accountable. The federal government may have abandoned those principles, but here in Georgia, thanks to the partnership between my administration and the General Assembly, we have delivered real results for the people of our state ahead of schedule and under budget. Uh, largely with federal stimulus funds in like wind in your sails, but okay, kick Uncle Sam. Thanks to a strong economy and conservative fiscal management of state revenues, <laughs> 
We've provided nearly $5 billion of direct relief to taxpayers in tax refunds, gas tax suspensions, homestead tax exemptions, and more. Uh, again, stimulus money. Hello, are we going to mention this? No. Okay. You all are a big part of that. Despite unprecedented challenges, we have maintained a AAA bond rating while celebrating the creation of more than 171,000 new jobs and roughly $74.5 billion of investment in every corner of the Peach State over the last five years. And unlike a lot of blue states, these are private sector jobs, not growing the ranks of government. And we are not done yet. Last month, I joined Lieutenant Governor Jones, Speaker Burns, and others to announce a plan to speed up implementation of the largest state tax cut in history. With your support, I look forward to signing legislation that decreases our state income tax to 5.39% starting this year. Hey, listen, let me not be the one to argue that income tax cuts aren't popular. They're good for just about everybody who creates income. But I got to point this out, by the way. The state income tax stops at $100,000 or more. You are going, if, if you make $101,000 a year or $1,101,101,000 a year, you pay the same percentage. Now, that's absolute batch, if you ask me. See, we have abandoned the progressive tax in this country, been whittling away at it at the federal level, and you, you know Republicans would love to just do away with it if they could at every state level because, again, it's a pseudo-progressive tax, and rich people don't like progressive tax. But he, again, here in Georgia, it's not all that much of a progressive tax. And listen, I know $100,000 to a lot of folks sounds like a lot of money, but $100,000 a year, which, by the way, is above the median uh, income for a household or an individual, 100000 per person or $200,000 for a couple, like in Metro Atlanta, that's not unusual. It's very much middle class because of the cost of living. But again, if you make $500 million a year or $100 million a year or $50 million a year, you pay the same percentage that some guy or gal who works as an accountant in Metro Atlanta making right at six figures does, I guarantee you the guy or the gal working as the accountant who probably works for the person making multi-millions of dollars works much harder, needs their take home much more than the multimillionaire who's enjoying the same tax rate that for them at their income level is minuscule. Seriously, the evisceration of the progressive tax at the federal level and here at the state level has turned it almost into a flat tax, which is a regressive tax. Money taken for like sales taxes or anything flat like that affects the uh, lower wage earning family or individual way more than it does a wealthy person who doesn't even notice it if it's missing from their pocket that day. This matters. It matters because it represents savings of $3 billion for Georgia taxpayers over the next 10 years. Mr. Speaker, Lieutenant Governor, while President Biden hires tens of thousands of new IRS agents. To replace tens of thousands of IRS agents who are aging out. My vote is we just keep cutting taxes here in Georgia. And the wealthy crowd goes wild. The path that Georgia has taken over the last five years has led to record job growth. 
historic investment in communities from Bainbridge to Blue Ridge, $5 billion of tax relief, and enough funds saved to operate state government for months in an emergency, not days. That's the choice for Georgians this November, and I feel confident they'll vote to keep Georgia moving in the right direction once again. So to answer the question, the state of our state is strong, growing, and prosperous because we trust our citizens more than we trust the government. Unless the citizen is a pregnant woman, oh my gosh, or a provider for a pregnant woman. Okay, we're coming up on a break here. Uh, we will come back with more of Governor Brian Kemp's State of the State speech. He goes into the border and uh, even Cop City, school vouchers, and more. So we will join him with him and chime in when necessary. More from the State of the State address when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Thursday. Governor Brian Kemp giving his annual State of the State address for a joint session of the General Assembly. Let's roll right back into that. We're about halfway through in case you're... No, wait, I forgot. There was about uh, 15 minutes of nonsense before that. I'm sorry then. So <laughs> we're about a third of the way through. Anyway, let's get right back to it. Georgia is succeeding because we have charted our own path, rejected the failed policies of Washington, D.C. But the money. And worked together to put our citizens first. But they'll take that Washington money. But I believe the worst thing we could do is call it a day and coast through what is certain to be another contentious election year. We have accomplished so much over the last five years, despite unprecedented times and challenges, because we haven't gotten distracted from doing the job that we were sent here to do. Like I mentioned four years ago in my second State of the State address, we stayed true to the example of Nehemiah, committed to our great work, and now we are seeing the results. It's no secret that Georgia is growing and is a top state for business for a record 10 years in a row. New jobs are headed our way almost on a daily basis. Existing businesses are looking to expand, and companies from all over the world look to the Peach State to locate their next headquarters. But with growth comes the need for more trained workers to fill these good-paying jobs in a rapidly changing labor environment. That's why I was proud to unveil the Georgia Match program at last year's Workforce Summit. The largest direct college admissions program in the nation, Georgia Match is already doing an incredible job linking the upcoming generation with the schools that meet their needs. As of today, over 10,000 students have already met their match. And we'll keep working to reach every high school senior in Georgia so that they know there is a higher education path open to them right here in the Peach State, no matter their circumstances. Not gonna lie, I actually like that program. Speaking of ed education, my amended 2024 budget and the fiscal year 2025 budget proposals double down on our continued and historic support of K through 12 education. With $1.4 billion in additional funds allocated to make a total of $12.8 billion. Republicans and Democrats alike have supported this record investment in our students. And I want to take a moment and thank all of you for that strong bipartisan achievement. It's also important for us to remember that increased funding 
does not guarantee greater success. As a small business owner for almost 40 years now, I believe, like many of you, that competition and the free market drives innovation. At the end of the day, it, they result in a better product for the consumer. When it comes to education, the same principles hold true. Over the last few years, there has been a great deal of debate around different proposals to expand options for students and families when it comes to finding the education that best fits their individual needs. Many members in both chambers have worked hard on this important issue, and I want to thank and applaud them for their efforts. Some prefer the term school choice or educational freedom. Here we go. Some call them vouchers. In my opinion, what each of these terms or slogans fails to mention is the child. At the end of the day, our first and foremost consideration should be the future of that student. Our job is not to decide for every family, but to support them in making the best choice for their child. This week, as we begin the second year of another biennial of the General Assembly, I believe that we have run out of next year's. I firmly believe we can take an all-of-the-above approach to education, whether it's public, private, homeschooling, charter, or otherwise. It's time for all parties to get around the table and agree on the best path forward to provide our kids the best educational opportunities we can, because that is what we were elected to do. See, but the problem with school choice or voucher programs or whatever you want to call it, whatever flower, flowery rhetoric the, the right wants to use about school choice is, in a lot of cases, this becomes just another tax cut to the better off. Reading from a political piece that came out uh, just last November, nearly half of new enrollees in Florida's expanded scholarship program are above the previous income thresholds for scoring Florida scholarship, feeding criticism from Democrats and other adversaries to the 2023 voucher law they argued would be a, quote, blank check for millionaires and billionaires. More than half of the vouchers funding in Arizona going to students previously enrolled in private school, homeschooling, or other non-public options, according to a memo circulated by the Hobbs administration. Uh, in a similar trend, nearly all students participating in the $32.5 million Arkansas voucher program, 95% were either entering kindergarten or enrolled in a private school the previous year, according to the uh, most recent data. And then you have to ask yourself, uh, who's going to hold these private schools, getting these vouchers accountable for what they're teaching? Uh, oh, oh, and uh, by the way, are the vouchers going to cover full tuition so that the poor family who wants to send their kid to a private or charter school? Uh, and also, what about the transportation? Because there comes a cost to that as well. All unanswered questions. To that end, my office and I look forward to working with the members and the leadership of both chambers to get a bill passed and signed into law this session. Finally, our students and teachers deserve to have a safe learning environment, no matter their zip code. Since I took office, I've had the opportunity to hold more than 30 roundtable discussions with educators and superintendents from all over the state. We heard frequently that our schools were in need of additional resources to enhance security. Because of guns. That's why since 2019, we have provided more than $185 million to all of our schools to help secure the safety and well-being of our students and our teachers. This year, I'm proposing we continue those efforts by making school security funding permanent. In my budget proposal, I've included a request for $104 million that will go directly to school districts 
for school safety enhancements. Schools will determine how to best use this money, whether for personnel like school resource officers or for physical or technology improvements that make our places of learning more secure. This investment is more significant because it will enable schools and administrators to plan accordingly, knowing that this money is headed their way for this specific purpose. I hope to see strong bipartisan support for this budget item to keep our kids and our schools safe. Again, that, a nice solution, but to a problem created by a lack of or lax gun laws in the state of Georgia. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. We've got a hard stop here on the America One Radio app at AmericaOneRadio.com. For those of you listening via podcast, it'll be just a short little stoppage. Uh, Andre Dickens, mayor of Atlanta, is in attendance for the State of the State speech, and there's a reason why. Brian Kemp's going to talk crime. Even though crime is going down, Governor Kemp's got to talk crime and the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility. He weighs in on that. We'll get to that when the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, let's get right back to Governor Brian Kemp's State of the State address before joint session of the Georgia House and Senate, the General Assembly, from earlier today. Since being sworn in as your 83rd governor, the top priority of my administration has been ensuring the safety and security of our communities. There is no doubt that we have made great progress from the GBI's anti-gang task force and heat unit and the Department of Public Safety's crime suppression unit to the First Lady's Grace Commission and the Attorney General's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit and the school security measures I just mentioned. We have not wavered in our commitment to strengthening public safety, but the state cannot do it alone. Thankfully, over the last two years, we have had strong partners at the local level who have worked alongside state law enforcement to make our capital city safer. Two of these gentlemen are here with us today, and I want to take a moment and thank Mayor Dickens and Chief Sherbaum for their partnership. We appreciate you all. little nod to the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility, the Atlanta Police Foundation, a.k.a. Cop City. While the mayor and I come from different political parties and don't agree on everything, we do agree on the importance of reducing crime and keeping our citizens safe. Bipartisan majorities of both chambers, the mayor and myself, all agree on the critical need for the completion of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center. This facility... Despite the fact there's a state facility that does this in Jackson, Georgia. Okay. This facility will provide our law enforcement officers, firefighters, and additional first responders the critical tools and knowledge, as well as the skills needed to keep themselves and our community safe. One of our brave public safety officers is here with us this morning. Exactly a year ago this week, this dedicated trooper was shot and severely wounded near the site of the Future Training Center. He spent weeks in the hospital fighting for his life. He endured multiple surgeries and spent the better part of a year in recovery while his family stood strong beside him. Marty and I were honored to spend time with him while he was in the hospital, and I was honored when he gave me one of my most prized possessions his SWAT challenge coin bearing his badge number. He had that coin on him when he was shot that horrible day, and it is a constant reminder for the price paid by men and women like him all over this state 
who keep our children, our homes, our businesses, and our streets safe. Trooper First Class Jerry Parrish, will you please stand with your wife, Kelly, and let us thank you for your great service. Well done. Nice touch. Although I have to ask, how much safer would the streets be for our citizens and our officers with tighter gun laws? Thank you to the entire Parrish family for your service, your bravery, and the sacrifices you've made over the past year for us. We are also joined in the gallery by some brave men who rendered life-saving aid to Trooper Parrish on site and who helped get him to safety. They represent some of the very finest from both the Department of Public Safety, the Department of Natural Resources, and our EMS folks. Would you all please stand and let us thank you for your bravery on that day. Again, very nice, very nice. We are so grateful for you all. I don't claim to speak for anyone else in this chamber today, but this decision is very simple for me and my family. As long as I'm your governor, there will be no gray area or political double talk. We will support our law enforcement officers. We will support our firefighters and our first responders in the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center needs to be built, period. Stance surprises no one. Article 1, Section 1, Paragraph 2 of the Georgia Constitution states, Protection to person and property is the paramount duty of government and shall be impartial and complete. To, to, to fulfill that paramount duty, we must do more than show our support for law enforcement in words. We have to show it through action. That is why last year, thanks to the work of the General Assembly, I was proud to sign a budget that included a $6,000 pay raise for state law enforcement officers. That pay raise was a recognition of the contributions these brave, these brave men and women make as they put their lives on the line day in and day out. This year, I look forward to working with each of you to once again provide another pay raise for state law enforcement. Another nice touch. Within my budget proposal are pay increases of an additional $3,000 for state patrol officers like Trooper Paris, as well as our correctional officers and other state law enforcement agencies. These investments will not only serve as a renewal, renewal of our commitment to these law enforcement officers, but will also support our ongoing retention and recruitment efforts. I'm also urging the General Assembly to complete what we started last year and give final passage to the Peace Officer Loan Repayment Program. Because despite what some may say, we need more police officers, not fewer. Not sure that I agree with that at all. I mean, maybe on a per capita level, we need to maintain a certain number for, you know, civility purposes. But honestly, this is the thing that just continues to perplex me. Well, it actually doesn't, because I think this is part and parcel to how Republicans like to operate. They don't ever want to actually solve problems. They want to show their base that they're lobbing Band-Aids at gaping wounds. Look, we're trying. Mm, are you? Are you really trying? Because crime exists where opportunity doesn't. And conservatives, by and large, for much of this nation's history, haven't sought to eliminate the fact that opportunity doesn't exist within the impoverished and or the marginalized. 
if they ever wanted to address crime fully, instead of treating, again, I, I treat this like cancer. If crime is cancer, if uh, the uh, immigration issue at our southern border is cancer, they're throwing us aspirin and looking at their base and going, see all this aspirin I want to give you? The liberals don't want to give you aspirin. No, the liberals want to treat the cancer. They want to find out what's causing it and cure us of it. Crime exists where opportunity doesn't. And where Democrats, liberals, progressives really want to attack crime is in its infancy, where it, where we're, where the seed is being planted for crime to exist in the first place, in opportunity-deprived areas and marginalized communities, and uh, bringing lifting people from poverty. Again, that comes with opportunity. That comes with eliminating barriers to opportunity. That comes with mom and dad, mom or dad making a living wage, no matter what job they have. There are always going to be, by the way, those who have limited means to do limited things. That doesn't mean that they have to have limited minimum income. Georgia, one of the few states still with the $7.25 minimum wage. The fight for 15, hell, it should be 20 by now. And the governor's going to talk about immigration woes here in just a few minutes. But again, that's another issue that Republicans are looking at a disease and saying, here, take two aspirin. This is what you really need. We need aspirin. More aspirin, please. Aspirin doesn't solve cancer. But finding out what causes cancer and eliminating it, that fixes the problem. We have, as a nation dabbled so much in the destabilization of Latin American countries, not just as a country or a military or a foreign policy, but even our businesses have had their role as well. The Chiquita Banana Company, Guatemala, do a little Googling there and you'll find out how just Guatemala got destabilized a lot by, again, American meddling. And instead of saying, well, maybe we should work on uh, making it so that folks who are fleeing destabilized uh, political or economic or even climate issues in their countries that we decide to work together with our Latin American neighbors and maybe the United Nations to restabilize or stabilize for the first time even areas where folks are fleeing in the first place. Nah, got to build a wall, got to demonize the folks who are coming here illegally. And instead of, by the way, uh, you, you ever see the, 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 the news footage of the, the, the hordes of arrests of brown-skinned people coming from uh, farms or factories, this, that, and the other, do you ever see them dragging out the employers in handcuffs? No. This year, we'll also be continuing our efforts to combat human trafficking in go. our state, thanks to the leadership of the greatest first lady in the country, Marty Kemp. Thanks to her work and that of the Grace Commission and members of both chambers, Georgia has gone from being known as a human trafficking destination to being known as the leader in going after traffickers and supporting the victims. Under the First Lady's leadership and with overwhelming support from both chambers, we have passed and signed into law eight pieces of legislation that go after those who work in this evil enterprise while also supporting the victims. Our efforts have, ena have enabled the GBI's heat unit to investigate 369 cases of human trafficking since its creation, and for Attorney General Carr's human trafficking prosecution unit to secure 32 convictions 
while assisting rescue of over 129 victims since it launched. But we, but we still have work to do, and Marty and I are both looking forward to working with each of you this session to keep up that fight. Five years into my administration, when it comes to health care, we've made enormous strides in lowering costs, expanding access, and incentivizing more health care providers to give care. Not really. We began this work with the passage of the Patients First Act in 2019, and since then we've seen strong results. Not really. In 2019, no counties in Georgia had more than two health insurance carriers. Today, 87% of Georgia counties have three or more carriers. And thanks to Georgia Access and the reinsurance program, enrollment in the private sector exchange over the past five years has grown from just under 460,000 to over 1.2 million Georgians. Georgia Access is also saving hardworking families more and more in their wallets. In all, we've reduced premiums by an average of 11% across the state. That represents an average annual premium reduction of almost $929 million a year. In rural counties, where premium prices were the least affordable when I took office, Georgia Access has reduced premium pay payments premiums by an average of 29%. And while some in the media refuse to acknowledge this, this significant progress, we will continue to support policies that work for Georgians, not political narratives. Because the fact is that for individuals and families struggling to make ends meet, lower insurance costs and more choices lead to better care that they can actually afford. And because we've made those sound policy choices, and budgeted conservatively, prioritized innovation and efficiency, we're now able to make other important investments in the health and well-being of hardworking Georgians. That includes our efforts in mental health. Two years ago, as you know, I was proud to sign into law the Mental Health Parity Act, a fitting capstone to the late Speaker David Ralston's years of service in this chamber and one that leaves a lasting legacy. One of the most visible examples of that legacy was the 988 crisis hotline campaign conducted by the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities last year. Thanks to Commissioner Kevin Tanner and his team, more Georgians than ever before are accessing services that help them when they need to turn their lives around for better. To enhance this program further, my budget proposal calls for an increase of $205 million for DBHDD and other entities that address mental health. This new funding will enable DBHDD to expand services for those struggling with mental illness. It will increase the number of crisis beds throughout the state. It will further crisis intervention resources in all communities and improve the quality of mental health services overall. Once passed, we will be spending $1.6 billion on mental health more than ever before. Hey, not going to argue the necessity of that expenditure. In fact, that is uh, the, uh, just a start. And honestly, I'd like to see a little bit more of that attached to law enforcement and even our prison system as well, because mental health is definitely an issue that our 
law enforcement officers have to uh, deal with. And we have learned uh, in recent years from several guests on this show just how many of our incarcerated are dealing with mental health issues as well. More than half, two-thirds, right? Anyway, uh, last few minutes of The Ron Show. We'll uh, dive into the last few minutes of the State of the State Address when The Ron Show returns here on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of The Ron Show for Thursday, and we're in the home stretch for uh, Governor Brian Kemp's State of the State Address. Here's the last little bit of that. I'm proud of what these and other agencies are doing to help their fellow Georgians and keeping us the best state to live, work, and raise a family. As we speak all across Georgia, there are men and women working hard to keep our neighborhoods safe, attract new jobs and industries to communities in need, and teaching a whole generation that will one day occupy these roles and much more. They have remained committed and hardworking during unprecedented challenges over the last five years, and I'm so proud of everything they have accomplished for our citizens. It is no secret that most state government jobs pay less than private sector opportunities in the same line of work. But many of our employees do it because they feel a sense of public service and they want our state to succeed. But for state government to stay efficient and stay ahead of Georgia's continued growth, we must be able to attract and then retain employees who perform these vitally important jobs. That is why my budget proposal provides a pay increase for all state employees, including our teachers. This will build on the historic raises we've provided for educators over, re over recent years and will increase every state worker's pay by 4%. My proposal also rewards those who gave decades of their lives and careers to serving others by allocating $500 million to shore up our state retiree fund. This, is, this will ensure that our state keeps its promises for our retirees and also stays on solid financial footing. Instead of expanding the size and scope of government, we're putting state dollars to work in targeted, efficient ways to recruit, retain, and thank employees in vital, vital roles from corrections officers to caseworkers. By doing so, we're continuing our efforts to wisely use every penny taxpayers send us from state agency personnel to our schools, public safety, and the healthcare marketplace. As we look across America, there's no doubt that we're at a crossroads. From crushing inflation and dysfunction in Washington to the crisis at our southern border and unrest overseas, these are indeed trying times. But I believe we have an opportunity here in Georgia, an opportunity to highlight a different path, one of the brilliant principles of America's founding is the role of the states. For them to be the laboratories of democracy, to protect the liberties and freedoms of their citizens, and to carry out the will of the people. Our founders didn't believe the states should always look to the federal government for answers. And by judging by current comparison, I don't think we would have much to learn. In Georgia, In Georgia, we balance our budget and spend less than we take in. We cut taxes instead of raising them. We return money back to the taxpayers rather than justifying new government programs. We back the blue and crack down on violent crime and gangs and put the safety of our communities 
ahead of partisan political agendas. Really? We celebrate the free market instead of using the heavy hand of government. We work together across party lines on more issues than not. Really? And most importantly, we put our people first. In an election year, I don't expect all of us to agree on every issue. Every district represented under this gold dome is different and sends each of you here with a unique set of issues to address. Over the next 36 legislative days, there will be passionate debate, there will be disagreements, there will be tough votes, there will be long nights, and maybe even some short tempers. But in the middle of all of that, I ask that we also remember Georgia is different for a reason, that our success is not an accident, but the result of a resilient people who elected their leaders to keep state government efficient, responsible, and accountable. In Georgia, we believe the American dream will always provide our people greater prosperity than the government. The state of our state is strong, growing, and full of opportunity. Let's use this session to keep it that way. Thank you all. May God bless you, and may God continue to bless the great state of Georgia. All right, so he talks about uh, working across the aisle to solve problems, but this was a pretty partisan speech. It's kind of hard to ignore that. Um, Democratic State Representative Scott Holcomb saying, it was a campaign speech with a lot of mixed messages. If Donald Trump weren't the presumptive Republican nominee, I'd wager it was a tryout speech to be a running mate. Uh, State Representative Sam Park telling the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he too tired of the doublespeak from Kemp accusing him of capitalizing on Democratic-backed federal tax incentives even while blasting Biden's policies. I think I was saying that a little bit while this speech was going on. Uh, We're seeing a boom in manufacturing in Georgia because President Biden and Democrats in Congress passed the transformative legislation. Uh, uh, According to Sam Park, one of the top Democrats in the House, he says, if the governor wants to demonstrate bipartisanship, he should stop playing the blame game. So Georgia House... Democrats, Senate Democrats held a press conference in the Capitol uh, under the Gold Dome uh, earlier this afternoon. The folks at Georgia Public Broadcasting did post a Vimeo link that I will share in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. I know, shocking, right? Ron, why didn't you air all that on the show? Well, it's like 15 minutes, and the governor took up a good portion of that. And I really feel it fair to give the state of the state address the uh, response it needs, and unfortunately, the Georgia Democratic Party didn't record good quality video for me to even draw audio from, and Georgia Public Broadcasting didn't post this, and they didn't share it until I think, what time is it? it was around 9.30 this evening as I'm doing a little post-production for this segment that already aired, or will air in the morning, or if you're listening in the morning, it's airing now. <laughs> this is what happens when you do a tape-delayed show. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is I would have loved to have given you that audio in the show and podcast form. However, you can uh, catch it in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. Actually, it's the only it's the only show note I have for you uh, in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com since the rest of the speech was the governor's state of the state address. So there's that. I also really hate that I didn't get to kind of go over and review yesterday's 
House Oversight Committee hearing audio because ugh, delicious stuff when Hunter Biden goes in there and ambushes everybody and says, all right, I'm here to testify. Who, who's ready for me to testify? And they're like, oh, no, the cameras are rolling. We want to do this behind closed doors so we can come out from behind those closed doors and then lie about everything you said. And make no mistake, that is clearly what Republicans want to do. Otherwise, they would not be trying to hold the man in contempt for failing to show when he clearly has shown twice that he's willing to show up and testify, but wants to do it before the American people. Which, by the way, the chairman of House Oversight, James Comer, offered him the opportunity to do. So he's just looking to cash that check. Uh, anyway... That's going to do it for the Ron Show today. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Show notes and more, ronshowatl.com. Have yourselves a good one.